Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain, or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. Suffering Steve Ditko! What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. Uh, This week, we have a little shake-up in our plans of what we were going to cover next, because you read a new comic the day it came out, and you had thoughts. And from what I understand, they were confused thoughts that you're looking to talk out and figure out even as we discuss. So yeah. want to tell everybody what we're going to be talking about, what has grabbed your attention. Breaking news from the 2023 X-Men Hellfire Gala, the one that is the debut of Fall of X. Uh, for context, we're recording this August 3rd. I have not read any of the comics that were released yesterday that are following up on this. Um, because I typically don't read comics when they come out. I, I picked this up because I had some cash in my pocket that I wanted rid of rather than my normal wait three months. And then I was like, oh, and yeah. I also have not read anything beyond this because I also don't go to stores on new comic day. I don't even have a pull list anymore because following new comics is a ridiculously expensive hobby. Well, and I mean, just get a subscription to Marvel Unlimited and you get them in three months or DCU and it's six or if you spend more money, three, I think that one's got like a weird tier system. Yeah. But um, yeah, so this is this is I doubt we are ever going to beat this turnaround ever again for the rest of the podcast. I mean, you know, maybe, but I doubt it. Yeah, whichever was closer, whether it was this or the Karma webcomic was a pretty quick turnaround too, so one of those. Just me having strong and immediate emotional reactions to X-Men comics. If you are at all on X-Men Twitter, which... If you've read this issue and care about it, there's a 98% chance you're on X Twitter. You've already seen the endless discourse and reactions to it. But I think we're gonna largely divide discussion between the initial pre-big page turn 
and then the shit hitting the fan afterward. Yeah, there's literally, like, the first half of this is a very typical... I mean, we've gotten the Hellfire Gala twice before, and the first time it was honestly a very weird, atypical kind of crossover, where, like, there was an order you were supposed to read the books in, but it wasn't, like, one plot, all the issues were still, like, their own thing, but they were all set at the gala, and you got more details about everything that happened as you went through, which was a pretty cool way of doing, like, an event, but the event is just a big party. And then last year they did a one shot like this that basically just sort of served as like an annual story for the like main X-Men title. I hadn't even read that one before I read this one. <laughs> I've gone back and done my research and I've read all of the stuff Duggan has written in Destiny of X, which I hadn't gotten around to reading all of that yet. Basically, my only gap at this point is Sins of Sinister which I was hoping to read in time, but I didn't. Yeah. But I don't think anything from Sins and Sinister plays into this other than Rasputin is here. Rasputin 4 is here somehow. And Mr. Sinister is not. I've basically read all of Krakoa X-Men up through Inferno and then only a very limited amount past that before this, but... I don't know, I didn't find it confusing. I think it's easy enough to follow what bits you actually need. It is, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a, a good jumping on point insofar as you're going to get a good jumping on point into X-Men. Yeah, it's like solid enough as a sort of a yeah. new beginning and end at the same time, but... If you don't want to go all like... the way back to Hoxpox, just restart here. But you should go all the way back to Hoxpox. That's the real good shit. Yeah, this definitely feels like a, I don't know, like a landmark, like a dividing line. But before we fully dive into it, usually we do a creator roll call up front. And in this case, there's a million fucking names. It's a jam issue. We have the primary writer is Jerry Duggan with Jonathan Hickman on a brief portion of it. Literally a page. There was a co-write page. And then for art, we have Adam Kubert, Luciano Vecchio, Matteo Loli, Russell Dotterman, Javier Pina, R.B. Silva, Valerio Shidi, Joshua Casara, Chris Anka, and Pepe Larraz, with colorists Rain Barreto, Cece De La Cruz, Matthew Wilson, Marte Gracia, and Eric Arseniega, and lettering by Virtual Calligraphy, and a cover by Phil Noto. Sorry. Tom Muller and Jay Bowen on design, although there's not very many... Um... Hang on, are there any? Wait, oh... Um, oh, I have a new complaint that I didn't even notice until now. Do we? Oh, okay. We have exactly one. Maybe, maybe there's one that I'm not seeing. Maybe two in 72 pages that pages that are, um, the, I forget what they're calling them. Just the like text info pages. Yeah. The info pages, which like, I mean, I prefer when they're a graph, but you know, 
I, I think that there was a, a fantastic storytelling device that maybe this book could have used instead of some of the um, veneration captions, but we'll talk about that. Yeah, only one of those type of pages, but let's see, 10 line artists, 10. I mean, this is like the last Hellfire Gala like special issue they did, which was also a jam issue. And Hickman's last issue on like the main X-Men title, which was what, number 21 or something? The one that was the Hellfire Gala issue of that, which also had like three or four different artists on it. And that was a regular sized issue. Like that's just what they do for these. I think because they've got like the little moments that like, oh, well, this was setting aside for Russell Donovan to draw, for example, with the team reveal. Did I do my overall thought on the art up front in terms of just the in general reaction to the jam issue aspect or should i save that for later i mean we can talk about it now because i actually think the worst example of the jam issue is in this front half that we're about to start going into anyway so yeah here's the thing for me i've read this twice to prepare for the podcast my second impression was more forgiving than the first. But the thing that I cannot forgive about this, beyond anything else, is the sheer number of artists. Because I just don't have tolerance for a jam issue. I really don't. Like, outside of the likes of, you know, like an anthology or something like that. Just like within the context of a singular issue, or even, frankly, like a singular story arc. I think it's very difficult to pull off having multiple artists and to include multiple line artists without having the overall impression severely deteriorate just from a lack of sense of cohesion and, like, sticking to a consistent aesthetic, you know? I think it's yep. possible... But I think it's very rare. And in my opinion, the rare examples that I think pull it off are books where there's literally like two line artists and they try really hard to make it work. This has 10. And in terms of this just standing on its own as a singular story, I can't picture looking back on this fondly. My main issue with this issue is that it just lacks the visual cohesion. And as we go through, you know, I'll talk about the ups and downs of, like, each individual artist's contributions here, because I think they're varied. I think there are some pages that look quite nice, and then some pages that do not. But, frankly, even if it all looked great... The styles are just way too disparate here for it to feel like, I guess, just a smooth read. You know, like when I turn the page every four pages and there's a new artist, I can't not get taken out of it a bit. You know, it just feels yeah. like a lack of consistent artistic vision and like commitment to tone. I think a number of artists would work if this was, like, set in a number of different locations or if different pages were from different characters' points of view, but it just sort of 
changes. Like it'll just be, oh, here's a new artist for this this next couple of pages, or here's a really weird out of place page in the middle of a very large chunk done by one artist that looks very different because it's a different artist and like, ooh, this art is better, but it feels really out of place here. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um so starting at the beginning we have a little sequence where <laughs> so Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, uh got killed off in a Spider-Man comic, uh which was in my opinion a terrible idea and a character who like literally Marvel's most successful like character character creation of the last decade because i think it, it, it's her and miles are the top two this century who like matter in a big way having yeah. her die in someone else's book which sort of inherently makes it about them is real weird and it's especially weird when you've got like a pakistani woman being killed off in the white dude's book so now the white you have a book where it's like Here's the white dude feeling sad about it. Uh, and it was all just an engineering device to have her get resurrected for this comic. Because as it turns out, she's not just an inhuman, as if you've read her original books, you would know. She's also a mutant. I mean, never mind the fact that they could have just told her she was a mutant. Like, they didn't need to kill her for this to happen. Like, her dying had nothing to do with her being a mutant. It just means that she wakes up as one. I, I don't even know why they killed her. They could have just had someone tell her. Scott could have just told her. It's established here that he was planning to. And just, she died before he could. After they realized that she was a mutant. Yeah, there's a bit of narrative stuff about, like, I suppose a goal of trying to make her feel sort of indebted, you know, because it's the mutant resurrection protocols that, like, well resurrect her you know and we get a lot of the other characters like professor x and emma talking to her about hoping that she'll come out as a mutant and be good pr for mutantdom basically so it's i suppose the death and resurrection is a means of giving her more immediate contact with all of those characters than just Cyclops strolling up one day. You know, it creates sort of a sense of, oh, does she owe them now? But these are just several pages of an X-Men event that are about Ms. Marvel. Yeah, and I gotta say, generally speaking, I really like Adam Kubert's art. I don't think he's very good at drawing Kamala. She has, like, three different, like, facial structures over the course of these pages. And, I yeah, I, I don't know. It just it, As someone who, you know, has read, I think, every issue this character has appeared in, because I'm a big fan, I am a bit, like, um, it just doesn't look quite right. Yeah, it feels quite rushed. And it feels like a matter of who was available on this deadline because at least speaking for me if i knew i was going to divide a book up between multiple artists and i knew i had adam kubert 
I would probably save Qbert for some of the action scenes and not the ones that are literally just talking heads. He's because... got one page in the action scenes later. One. He's got a very cool, very good looking classic Cubit page of Wolverine. And I'm like, that's great. Because Cubit can draw Wolverine. I mean, he did. He he was the first artist on the Krakoa Wolverine title. Yeah, and he was great on that. Yeah. And I'd love for him to go back to it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I don't think that he's always bad at just depicting scenes of characters talking, you know, like in the Wolverine book, there's plenty of scenes of people talking and it still looks good. So I think it is probably compounded with some degree of deadline or something going on here. But it still just feels like a strange decision to give most of his page count to a scene that doesn't really involve what I think of as his top strengths as an artist, you know? Yeah, I all the Ms. Marvel stuff to me feels like Marvel had this idea after this comic had already been planned. And like everybody who was involved in killing Kamala off and resurrecting her got like half the time they should have to do it yeah the whole thing feels rushed it does not feel like a plot any of the writers came up with you know i mean it clearly it isn't because it's it's going through multiple departments like this isn't a storyline like zebwell said that this was a storyline he came up with i'm like well he's obligated to say that but zebwell did not come up with the idea of killing kamala and then having marvel as a whole publish a like funeral issue and then announcing the day after that funeral issue comes out that she'd be joining the X-Men. Yeah. And then having her join the X-Men. Like, no, he didn't plan that. That was, you know, someone probably as far up as actually being in Disney rather than Marvel was like, wait, she's not a mutant in the comics and told them to fix it ASAP. Yeah. It's like at most, you know, he could have pitched some specifics of how to do it, but it's all very clearly a matter of smoothing out differences with the MCU character and with tying more towards the X-Men than the Inhumans now that Disney has the full movie rights and they don't have to pretend to care about the Inhumans anymore. There is only one Inhuman we care about here. It's too early for Romeo. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll get Romeo does it. the fall of X I predicted that Romeo would do the fall of X and was I entirely wrong no <laughs> Um. so moving on from that we go to uh, speaking of the Iceman solo series here's uh, Luciano Vecchio's art Um. this is what I would call the section the typical Hellfire Gala bit where the you know we've got just all of the mutants wearing fancy clothes. Some of the designs are questionable. Some of the designs are fantastic. Um, I like jeans when it's drawn by someone else. Um, I really like Juggernaut coming in his regular Juggernaut outfit, but with a bow tie on it. I think that's great. Yeah, this is a lot of just like the Stepford Cuckoos greeting the guests to the Hellfire Gala, the event starting up brief conversations between various pairs of characters we have mystique and destiny arguing showing that something is up 
we have some more Ms. Marvel stuff with Professor X. We have Cyclops getting called off to an alarm elsewhere. Basically just like the events kicking off in a sense that there's some sort of trouble brewing, but not really getting into the specifics yet. Yeah, so there's like an alarm at the treehouse, which is where the X-Men are like set up. So he goes off to deal with it by himself, because generally speaking, he should be able to. He's Cyclops, he's extremely capable. Um, the Kamala stuff, I, I rather like the idea of it, although I haven't read since the Sinister, so I don't know how Rasputin 4 is here. And I don't know why this version of her seems a lot more fangirly than the version from Powers of Ten way back at the start of the whole Kukoa era. Um, but I do like the pairing that I think is going to continue into Kamala's solo series, which, to be clear, I'm very excited for Kamala's upcoming solo. I think that's going to be great. I like Carlos Gomez's art. Um, I think Iman Valeni is... How do you say that last name? Anyway, I'm like very excited for that. I, and I do like the idea of her being a mutant. I think that is an interesting story to do. I just don't like the way that they got there. But like here's hoping that solo book is a big success. But here, the reversal of the normal Kamala Khan dynamic, where she's paired with a character like Wolverine or um, you know. Captain Marvel, who she's like a big fan of, and she's like fangirling. She's now got Rasputin, who's fangirling about her because of the stuff that Kamala's gonna like do in the future. It's very Bishop meeting Jubilee and being like, oh, Jubilee, the most powerful X-Man. I think it's cute. That's fun. It's got potential. I, I Again, I don't... This isn't the Rasputin 4 I remember really liking from Powers of Ten, but maybe she acts more normal when she's not around Ms. Marvel. Yeah. It's all fine. It just, again, just like feels like a Kamala solo in the midst of what's otherwise an event book. So it's just kind of awkward, not terrible, but yeah. And then we have, this is the oddest page. We have a page that is here randomly in the middle of all of this Vecchio art. We have a single page of Valerio Schiti who um a is a much better artist sorry just this i i vastly prefer skeety stuff but b is drawing what essentially amounts to an incredibly cryptic ad for the upcoming series he's doing with jonathan hickman called gods but this just this tells me nothing more about gods it doesn't like make me excited for gods anymore when i just sort of default am because it says Hickman and Skeety underneath the title Gods. Like, I was going to read it anyway. And, yeah, it's a weird page. Yeah, I don't dislike it. I think that art-wise, it's one of the more interesting visual bits in the book because it's Skeety. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I like looking at this. Yeah, and it's like... To a degree, it sort of continues a similar issue to what I have of the Kamala stuff of just feeling like, oh, here are these sort of thrown in advertisements for something that's upcoming, you know, and obviously this is serialized storytelling and part of the 
premise, of course, is to just keep things moving from point A to point B and build excitement for point C down the line. But both this and the Kamala stuff, again, just don't feel like they were necessarily always planned to be in the book and they feel shoehorned. And I think the much better art here helps it in comparison to the Kamala stuff. And I suppose the fact that it's only a page also kind of helps as opposed to being like 10 pages that feel out of place with the rest. But fortunately, after this, it more or less feels like we're just on the main plot for the rest of the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it it is it is just a case of like, okay, here's this. And then we're back to Vakio. Right? Yeah, this is still Vakio. Um as so uh, well, two important things are sort of established immediately. Uh Wilson Fisk is now living on Krakoa, the Kingpin, because he's married to Typhoid Mary now, which is a thing from the uh Chip Zdarsky Daredevil run, which is an excellent Daredevil run, and um, I like would recommend it. I mean, most Daredevil books are good, actually. But um, he has escaped his law troubles by, well, he's married to a mutant, so he's a citizen of Krakoa now, and he's getting to live there. And while the Avengers are annoyed about this, there's obviously nothing they can do. And then they all get a distress call and swan off to deal with that. Uh, alongside Rogue, who still has her little Avengers card from when she was in the Uncanny Avengers pre-Kokoa, which, um, weird that she's just kind of got this on her at this party, but she decides to go and help them out. Uh, and this will be, well, it's, it's, Ref says that there's some kind of incident in DC as seen in Uncanny Avengers 3 comic book day. So, I, I haven't read that, but that's where you find out where all the Avengers go. But it is important that uh, the only people with superpowers left are mutants. And also Rogue is no longer here. Yeah. And then we turn the page and another artist change. This time to Russell Dodderman. With Gene essentially announcing that it's time for the annual X-Men election. Yep. It, it is. Well, the artist change is exhausting. Dodderman is once again a very nice step up. I wish Dodderman had just drawn all of this. Because he's the artist who I most associate with the Hellfire Galas anyway. Because of all those like wonderful design variants for the first one. Yeah. I'm like, just just have Dodderman do the whole thing. Just give him the time to do it all. <laughs> anyway. So it's established that Gene and Cyclops are like quitting the X-Men because um reasons so there's like the vote that they do every year the psychic vote happens and so we get our new x-men team which i gotta talk about this lineup for a second because when i saw this lineup i was genuinely quite excited for the book that would be coming out because this is a very cool lineup of characters so we have talon who is like the old laura kinney wolverine from the vault she's fine she exists. She's probably actually one of the children of a vault who's a shapeshifter. Doesn't matter. We have Sink, who has been genuinely quite cool in the Krakoa era. Cannonball, Prodigy, Frenzy, Dazzler, Jubilee, and Juggernaut. And the other interesting thing about this team is that aside from Talon and Sink, it is literally all of the characters who are up for the fan vote. 
So the thing about the Hellfire Galas is at each of them, they've announced the new team of X-Men who are the X-Men in like just the book that is called X-Men that's coming out. And heading up to the release of the issue, they do a fan vote for like on the internet for like you can vote for which of ever six characters they sort of nominated. And Jerry Duggan, who has been writing this title since they started doing this, will write that character into the team and into the book. And so the first winner was Polaris and the second winner was Firestar. And both have gotten a lot to do because they were the ones who won that vote. And the initial surprise upon looking at this lineup, if you remember that vote, which I actually didn't at the time, I found out later that this was the team from the vote, is that, oh, they just decided they all won. And like the trick is, oh no, they were all going to get in. And I got to say, I'm a big fan of all of these characters except for Talon. So I was pretty happy with it. It is a cute idea. Of doing just like sort of a vote fake out of oh the team is literally just all the nominees you know that's a fun surprise it's no a decent team too and most of them are in quite nice looking attire Dazzler is in this entire body covering just like shimmery jumpsuits and when i say entire body only her lips have a cut out she doesn't even have eyes to see yeah i think it's a disco ball it's great honestly with like just a couple like exposing the head more they could just make this her regular outfit or at least like her outfit have some bits of it that are like this design because it's really cool but uh yeah i i also feel like We'll talk about that in a second, because um, are you ready to turn the page? Yeah. So we turn the page, and the mutant hunting sentinel, super sentinel Nimrod, uh, is flying in from the top of the page, and it does what can only be described as as he lands, pulps several characters. Uh, So we see that uh, Dazzler, Cannonball, and Prodigy are all sort of cut in half. Frenzy's head gets smashed. Um, Talon and Sink are getting away in the background. Jubilee is like hit and hurt, but she's not like immediately dead. And even Juggernaut's getting knocked on his ass. Like it, it's knocking Juggernaut on his ass. Um, this is where a lot of the discourse has come from. And I I think this discourse is fair. So one of the things that a lot of people have been asking about these elected X-Men teams, um, which, first of all, every time they've done the X-Men vote, if you've noticed the three X-Men votes, because spoiler alert, Juggernaut is the one who won this X-Men vote. Um, they do nominate a bunch of characters who like aren't white, but it's always a white person who wins the vote because it's normally the white person who's the more popular character who's just going to win a vote. Like, Polaris won the vote because she was on The Gifted. Firestar won the vote because of Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And Juggernaut won the vote because he is the Juggernaut bitch meme. To be completely, like, bluntly honest, that's why he won. (laughs) You know, because this is going well outside of people who are reading comics who are actually voting on this. This is just, like, the Marvel social media pages. He's just one of the most well-known characters here because... Really, the only other candidate who could even possibly compare 
in sheer fame to him here would be Jubilee because of the 90s cartoon. Like, him and her are really the only ones who would even be in the running in terms of just people knowing who they are. You know, which, like, by, like, X-Men reader standards, Cannonball and Dazzler aren't obscure, but they don't compare to Jubilee and Juggernaut. Exactly. Um, and so if you look at the previous lineups, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna name the characters, because I do feel this, I, this is very discoursey, but I also think that, like, they're asking for this when they do something like a page turn fake out like this. So the original lineup for the Krakoan X-Men was Scott and Jean, Laura Kinney, Wolverine, Rogue, Polaris, Sink, and Sunfire. And then the second lineup was Scott and Jean again with Sink, Havoc, Iceman, Magic, Firestar, and Forge. And then later Havoc like left and got swapped out for Talon. The thing about those teams is they have both of them only have two characters who aren't white. And in none of those cases are aside from well, actually in, in none of the teams are any of the characters canonically like in the comic, like they're allowed to talk about it queer, except for Iceman, who is a white dude. And so when they introduce a team that is made up of far more characters of color, you know, you've got four rather than two. Um, It's actually 50% of the cast. Yeah. And then you have canonically queer Prodigy. You've got Frenzy, who is a black woman, and you've got Jubilee, who is an Asian woman so in both of the all three of those cases you have intersectional identities as well which is literally not a thing on the like you don't have any intersectional minorities on the previous two teams at all whenever you do have someone who like isn't white they're a man you also specifically have two black male characters on the same team at the same time which never happens that never happens in an American superhero comic. Yeah, that's that's so rare to see that show up. And like and these are all exciting characters who people were literally in the lead up to this issue, like I think it's a couple months before whatever when the vote closes, but they were literally campaigning to have these people on this team. So to see so many of them get suddenly shockingly and and Certainly for a modern day Marvel comic, like I haven't seen people explode on panel in a while, but there's people exploding on panel here, including two of the characters we were just talking about as being intersectional minorities, where you've got like a prodigy who is a bi man and, you know, frenzy who is a black woman explicitly like being violently killed on panel in this way as like a patient surprise. I can see why people are pissed off. I think they should have just made it look like a normal version of the team. Like, if they want to do this page turn thing, I don't know why it had to be the six who were voted in, who who were, like, up for the fan vote. That's what doesn't make sense to me. It could have just been any characters. It didn't have to be this lot. Like, the only one who had to be here was Juggernaut to say, yes, Juggernaut won the vote. I think it's mainly the racial optics of it, really, like, because, like, in it's, Fury, yeah. the, like, fan vote, you know, doing sort of, like, the gag of all your favorites 
and then killing them all the next page. I could see that being funny, you know? I don't dislike that idea, but I also can't blame, you know, people on Twitter for being, like, typical, you know, like, the most racially diverse X-Men team we've seen in God knows how long. Just Might be ever. Yeah, might literally be ever. Last the page. Half of the team are not white. Yeah. And half the team are women. And it's been a while since that happened. Actually, once Talon replaced Havoc, the last team was also 50% women. Yeah. But and... like, yeah. I <laughs> this think Sorry. was a mistake, in my opinion. Like, just it, this wasn't the way to do this. I think a lot we'll see how much these characters get used in the books going forward you know because solicits haven't really revealed who the core characters in that book are really going to be going forward yet you know if this team specifically is going to be able to come back or all have major roles or not you know um we'll see what happens to all these characters um but I can understand why people would be annoyed by this. Although, before we move past it, I would like to talk about the actual art of the Dodderman Nimrod page. I guess before I go on my spiel, what did you think of it? I think it's fine. I think that he suddenly develops a case of Visard Ribic face, which is odd, because it's not something I normally associate Dodderman with, but like, you know what I mean when I say Assad Ribic face? I assume you mean like the character's facial expressions, right? Yeah, like the wide-eyed mouth open thing just looks like suddenly his faces look a lot like Assad Ribic, which like, to be clear, I love Assad Ribic's artwork, artwork, but like his character's faces are pretty like silly sometimes. Yeah, like Gene is meant to look shocked, but it almost looks kind of comical, honestly. Just like the sheer extremity of the bulging eyes. Juggernaut's making me giggle. Yeah, Juggernaut is another prime offender. Yeah. You read this for the first time in a physical copy, right? Yeah, I have my physical copy in front of me. Okay. I've only read this digitally, so I don't know. It's entirely possible that the page turn could feel more impactful in print than in PDF. You know, I would believe that. I generally prefer reading things physically when I can. And there is something about, like, the physical act of turning the page versus just, like, swiping on a screen, you know? But my experience reading it, I think this page turns impact is weakened for me by the actual depiction of the violence on page, which isn't bad exactly, but I don't think this is really showing off Dodderman's strengths, you know? Like, I think the initial page of just, like, all eight characters together smiling, a very pinuppy group shot... You know, that's very up Dodderman's alley. That sort of oh, made, yeah. made to be a poster cover image. You know, like Dodderman, I think of that and I think of fashion. 
are probably the two main things immediately come to mind to distinguish Dodderman as an artist. And gruesome violence is not something that comes to mind for Dodderman. No. And I don't think the execution is terrible by any means, but it's also just not quite giving for me. And I think, like, Dodderman has a tendency to draw characters that, for lack of a better word, just look perfect. You know, like, they are meant to look very cool, very awesome superhero, pretty people. And even though we're watching these people get torn to a pulp, it doesn't actually feel very gruesome to me. You know, like, the actual viscera of the bodies is mostly just some indistinct red blotches and then some stripped clean skeletons. You know, there's not really a lot of the sort of really horrifying going there type of thing that you would have seen in, for example, when we discussed X-Force a few weeks ago and... Mike Allred was drawing like intestines and shit. You know, it's like, it's like this whole page all has a red hue to it. And therefore, even like the red of the blood doesn't stand out because it just matches all the rest of the page. Does that make sense? What this page reminds me of is when a PG 13 movie gets turned into an R rated one in post production by adding CGI blood squibs. Yeah. And like one extra F-bomb. I will also say I don't think that the posing of Nimrod in like I, the angle of his descent and like the way that he's hitting the characters doesn't quite match the way that like I, I don't think the page like works as like an impact as in like the physical impact of Nimrod hitting. It looks like he's doing a handstand. There feels like there's an inconsistency and, like, the way that all the characters are angled, you know? Like, the flow of the corpses is so everyone's jutting off in a different way. Yeah, it it's... it's. I would normally have expected a lot better from Donovan, because I do think he's very good at interiors when he does them. Like, I do associate him the most with covers and with designs. But, like, I'm very happy to read a Russell Donovan interior, too. And I've never really had a point where I've stopped reading a comic of his and gone, how is this, like, physically laid out in, like, if this was a 3D space and been very confused by it. But uh, I I am here. I also, uh, Nimrod saying sorry to drop in as, like, his funny line doesn't work for me as a joke or even as something I think even Nimrod would say at this point. Like, Nimrod's kooky, but... No, I, I, no one would be able to hear him. He's like exploding everything. He's apparently fallen from orbit at terminal velocity. Yeah. And even the joke also just sort of adds to the tonal conflict here of like between that joke and the facial expressions on Gene and Kane just don't really work together, you know? Yeah. So, um, moving on from this one page, we have, uh, well, Nimrod kills Jubilee, 
Jubilee gets enough time before she dies horribly to say fuck you machine. And so, you know, good good on Jubilee for getting a line in, I guess, of this new X-Men team, which is now like they are all dead except for Sync, Talon, and Juggernaut. Like, cool. We move back to the Vecchio art where we have a little cameo from our favorite inhuman, Romeo. Uh, because Iceman is going in to fight Nimrod because he is an incredibly powerful Omega level mutant. He should be able to handle this guy. Why they haven't used him to handle this guy before, if they're so convinced he could fight him, I don't know. But whatever. Talking about coloring stuff, you notice how Iceman's ice is blue in this because he's not in his uh his dumb white costume that ruins the design of like his ice form. Yeah, the coloration is icy blue. <laughs> yeah. The tried and true. And basically he's fucking Nimrod up, but Nimrod manages some type of weapon on him that isn't explicitly stated yet what it was, but essentially seems to melt Bobby from the inside out. And we get one panel of a close-up on Bobby's face as it's melting, and there's sort of a skeletal look to it as well, of, like, watching him not just, like, you know, like, melt into human, but, like, or rather, Bobby like, looked in the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, and I will give credit where credit is due. This panel is easily the best single image I have seen this artist create thus far. I think this panel is actually a pretty effective horror moment. He finally beats the accusations of his same face by just not giving Bobby a face anymore. By just letting it drip off. Uh, I also really like that as he's dying, he asks where Gene, Scott, and Warren are. You know, because he can't see anymore because his eyes have melted. But not and Hank. Not Hank. Which actually, I, I guess someone told him about um, everything Hank's been up to. So I guess maybe maybe Bobby is no longer besties with Hank. And he's like, it's the original four X-Men now. Yeah. Uh, I like that we actually have him caring about the O5 again. Which, like, that's always been his thing. And his solo series was just like, what? His best friends are the O5? No. Romeo's real upset. Uh, to... To be clear, this is the first character where I'm like, so Iceman does have a solo coming up. Like, I think that the first issue of it is like next week. Yeah. I don't know I... how that works. He's very dead. But like, there is an aspect of the deaths in this where I'm like, huh, isn't doesn't he have a book coming? Yeah, which like, you know, to some extent, superhero comic, X-Men comic. There's always going to be the, they'll be back eventually. But in this case, it's very much a, don't worry about any of this too much because he'll be back next week. Honestly, it's like when Kamala died and everyone's like, she's just dying so she can be a mutant. And then that's exactly what Marvel did. Yeah, which all of the Iceman specific focus here too does also feel kind of like is this specifically constructed just to make the reader be like, oh yeah, Iceman, maybe I should buy Iceman next week, you know? 
like it feels like another aspect of the issue, like the gods preview and the Ms. Marvel stuff that's very much like make sure to give this more page time because we have a book to sell. I mean, yeah, but it is also the one time I've ever enjoyed any aspect of this artist's artwork. And like, I think it's a well-written couple of pages of like Iceman doing this fight. I, I don't think this is that bad of an example. And presumably his solo series is going to be about how he's actually alive somehow. Probably an ice thing. Yeah, I do think this is like a much less egregious example than say like the Kamala stuff this isn't as like weird you know like it at least it feels mostly appropriate that it takes up the page time that it does yeah this is much closer to me to like Hickman using an issue to set up a concept that he'll pay off in a later issue of his series in that this is just setting up something that in this case another writer but like they're knocking it down soon yeah. It doesn't feel like this is necessarily editorial. This is like, okay, this is what we're going to do with this Iceman solo, so this is what we got to do to set it up. Yeah. and I hope that's in... just an excuse to have Romeo not show up in that solo. I also hope he will not. But at this point, the action essentially just keeps on speeding up. We have fleets of Sentinels arriving to attack. We have the... Mr. Stasis personality, Mr. Sinister showing up with uh, Karima. Stasis. <laughs> what did I call him? You called him Mr. Stasis, which like, yeah, he's he's like the Mr. Sinister with the club on his head. But um, he insists that he is a doctor. Dr. Stasis, yeah. With uh, Karima, Omega Sentinel, just more and more baddies showing up, things getting worse. And we get Dr. Stasis taunting Charles. And on the topic of the art and consistency, one of my main complaints with the art across the issue is that Professor Rex is at least three different dudes in this issue. And I'm saying that going off of just the bottom half of his face because he always has his helmet off. But the bottom half of this white man's face still manages to be several different men across the course of the story. Who's doing these pages? Is this Silva? Maybe. I think so, but I'm not positive. I'm pretty sure they don't give us the the numbers, but I think... Or is it Javier Pina? It could be Javier Pina. I don't know. It's either Silva or Pina, because uh, there's no way it's Kisara, Anka, or... Laras, because I recognize all of them instantly. Yeah. And again, at least this is a step up art wise. Yeah, like the art on these pages is solid. And here we get one of the main plot reveals that the Krakoan medicines have been tampered with so that Orcus essentially now has a kill switch that they can activate in anyone who has taken them. So it's like biomedical terrorist hostage taking, essentially, that they're going to use to make Charles do what they want by threatening to kill all these humans if he doesn't. 
honestly, using Co- Charles's savior complex against him is a pretty clever plan. Yeah. Uh, also, Modok is here, so uh, we have Modok. They're actually trying to make him look frightening, and in some panels, it almost, almost, but doesn't quite work. He still looks hilarious. I like Modok. I don't know why he's in Orcus, though. He's not someone I associate with the mutants on any level. Yeah. My main gripe with this issue on a story perspective, the first time I read it, was that so much of it involves so many things going wrong at the same time and to such a severe extent in terms of the events only being able to happen because of the X-Men making so many mistakes concurrently. And the first time I read the issue, I thought it all felt just a bit too convenient. You know, it felt kind of at odds with just how meticulously planned all of Krakoa felt during the establishment. So in that way, it felt kind of just like, okay, we want to depict the fall now. So we're going to write in whatever we have to do to make that happen. And I wasn't fully convinced that I bought all of this happening so conveniently. But I do agree that the Charles aspect of it, I think, is quite well done. And at least all of his stuff feels in character and feels smartly done and calls back to X-Men Red specifically and the way that Magneto and Storm talk about Charles. Yes, yes. The um, he will murder us all line of Magneto's. Spoiler alert for sort of the rest of the events of the issue, but I, this issue to me overall feels like it's Charles's issue and Jean's issue. And I think that those stories are both really cool and well done. Yeah, it's like we have that weird, like, Kamala prologue, but once we hit the main event, it really does become Charles and Jean at the focus. And Kingpin, weirdly, being awesome, which is just such a strange feeling to have about Kingpin. I'm like, hell yeah, Kingpin. That's fun, like... Yeah, only only when Orcus is in the room am I like, Wilson Fisk, go get him. I do like an occasional moment where a non-typically X character sort of comes into the plots and has to deal with things to just be like, yep, this is this is the Marvel Universe. All these characters inhabit the same world. You know, like, it is fun to see just a really seemingly random on the face of it pull but make it work like the kingpin of all people fighting alongside them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I will, there's a moment later, which we'll talk about. Yeah, I, I really like kingpin here. It's worth noting that these sentinels are made by Stark Industries, which I believe has been bought out. Like it isn't Iron Man, he's been making these, but they all look like giant Iron Mans, even more so than they look like sentinels. Just yeah. like, you know, now one of the most powerful companies in the Marvel Universe has been mass-producing these things. Like, Orcus has kind of set themselves up in a really strong position and, like, clearly planned this out to a pretty insane degree. Like, it's 
yeah, the X-Men fucked up a lot, but like most of the fuck-ups were just like Charles's and the Quiet Council, who are a really shit government, so. Yeah, I felt a bit more forgiving about the whole like convenience thing on the second read-through. You know, I think time will tell and as the story develops more in terms of how much my feelings progress about like how earned this all feels but at least on the second read through it bothered me a bit less but during all of the fighting you know shit's going down you've got people fighting Nimrod and people trying to take the Sentinels down and Jean Grey, being Jean Grey, is seemingly going to be the one to take care of it all because she is godlike powerful and therefore needs to be taken off the board immediately. In this case, by whatever has become of Moira McTaggart, who went from being one of the most interesting aspects of Hawks Pox to being just an incredibly boring maniacally evil robot lady who stabs gene with some sort of mutant harming chemical laced blade or whatever the fuck it is it's bright swill from um ten of swords it's like the alcohol that um storm and logan drank and like fucked up their powers yeah this is like a concentrated version of that because it's like an anti-mutant thing that's magical. So it's not something that they've really thought of doing a defense for. Um, so, like, it is kind of an established thing, but we didn't see it used like this. Um, I'm so mad that Mori's got a phonetic accent again just in time for her to be a one-dimensional psychopath villain. And, like, the one kind of interesting thing about Moira that, like, you know... I. I really, really loved Moira's villainous turn in Inferno, and then I really, really hated Moira's villainous turn in Ten Lives X Deaths of Wolverine. Like, I don't need Moira to be aligned with the mutants or anything. I think she's almost more interesting if she's, like, a third party in the mutants versus machines aspect of the War with Orcus. But she's just this... She's just really angry because she got kicked out of Krakoa after fucking up and like she got kicked out of Krakoa because she was gonna cure all the mutants and like get rid of their powers that was her plan that's why Doug said okay goodbye and it just feels like such a ridiculous overreaction to become this nothing of a character um things are dire for uh the Scottish X-Men fans these days frankly yeah, I was in such a good place for a couple of years, and then ten lives, X deaths of Wolverine, or was it X lives, ten deaths? I don't fucking know. It doesn't actually seem to matter to the books which one is the X and which one is the ten, so it just doesn't work the same way that House of X powers of ten worked. Sorry, Ben Percy, that's the one Kokoa thing you've done that I didn't like. Yeah, and essentially everyone is understandably pissed off to see gene get got but moira has accounted for that and essentially is using the previously mentioned hostages as 
a negotiation tactic with Charles and basically forces him to stop all the mutants in their track or else she and Orcus will kill all the humans. And Charles acceptability politics Xavier does as asked. He yeah. Like they'll pull a kill switch and they'll kill all the the all the humans who the mutants have helped using all of their like magical drugs. And Charles looks at this equation of like putting all of the mutants on the line or risking the chance that Orcus may actually be able to pull off this threat. And he's like, mm, I'm just going to have to put all of mutants on the line instead. Uh, and so Orcus have like taken control over the Krakoan gates uh, that let mutants go anywhere. And basically Dr. Stasis is like, well, we'll, uh, we'll, we've got these set up to go into space. The implication is that they set it up to go to Araco, which is Mars, which is uh, where like other mutants do live now. And so Stasis then says every time they find a mutant on Earth, they'll kill a human. And then the second time they'll kill 10 humans. And then the third time they'll kill 100. I suppose you're smart enough to know about the powers of 10, which is a fun line. It's it's fun when a, I mean, he's basically, a, he's, he's Mr. Sinister. He's just like the one that hates mutants instead of the one that's like, ooh, I could use mutants. Now it's fun getting a little like winky line like that. I thought that was a pretty good bit. Meanwhile, Jean is slowly turning into a skeleton on the floor because of whatever she got injected with. But she takes the opportunity to go into Firestar's mind and like recruits her for a to pretend that she had betrayed the X-Men and to become a mole in Orcus. And meanwhile, Jean rewrites Dr. Stasis's mind so that he thinks that he had recruited Firestar as a mole. Uh, this is clearly set up for a plot that we're going to follow in one of the books coming up. I think it's pretty neat putting Firestar in this position. And the idea that she is the one who betrays the X-Men, like, that they are like, oh yeah, who would they believe would betray the X-Men? And she's like, oh, Firestar, because she's been an Avenger this whole time. I, I like that as a beat. I think that's fun. Even more fun is when Firestar's like, if I need to, who do I throw under the bus? And Jean immediately replies, Beast. Yeah, it sets up just this subterfuge plot line to go forward. And I think is one of the most successful aspects of the story in terms of building ongoing interest and reason to keep following the line and... As long as the execution of the plot point is solid, I think it's setting Firestar up to hopefully get a good story that's going to make readership more interested in her as an X character. I mean, she did win that vote. Supposedly, we are really interested in Firestar. Someone is, but maybe now we will be too. Yeah. Yeah. I... I... I care more about the horse, to be honest, but I do think that this is a good plot for her, and I'm interested in seeing where that goes. It's kind of cool that her getting voted onto the X-Men has now led to this being, like, a major plot going forwards, even after, like, the year that she's on the X-Men is over. Yeah, it's it's worked out well for the character. See, these votes really matter, because if you win the vote, you become a major character going forward, even after the year you're on the X-Men. And if you lose the vote, 
you get turned into mush on panel. Yeah. Uh, so Charles puts on Cerebro and orders every mutant on Earth to go through the gates to the nebulous space that he has been told they're going to. And they all march in lines into these gates. The imagery here is... It is, I think, intentionally evoking exactly what you think it's evoking. And Charles is doing it because, of course, he bloody is. If Eric was here, he would have beheaded him by now. Yeah. Um... We have a weird interlude with Mother Righteous, who is another one of the Sinisters, because there's four of them. Because they're, like, the sweet different card suites. Which is a very fun idea. I, I really like this idea of there being four different Sinisters. Uh, but this one's Mother Righteous, and she's, like, the girl one. She's got a heart theme. I've barely read anything with her in it, because I still haven't read Sins of Sinister, and, like, Legion of X is the one thing I haven't finished as well, and that's the one she's from. But it's implied that she's doing something with the gates and where the mutants are going, and she's taken the Atlantic island of Krakoa, because Krakoa's in the Pacific, but there's also, like, a small chunk of it that's in the Atlantic. And she's taken, like, that chunk and put it in a little, like, ball. Yeah, another just set up for further development down the line. And meanwhile, while the majority of mutants are following Charles' instructions, a major plot point is that some of them, primarily his students, have been trained against exactly this sort of psychic attack and are able to resist it, primarily his own students, because Charles is gone. Well, he's onslaughted before, so he has understandably trained his students to resist psychic directions in the event that he ever went rogue. And thus, many of the most important characters in the X-Office do not go marching into the gates. Uh, this is, like, also really coolly visualized with um, this little lettering trick to make the word resist as they're saying it into the form of a red triangle, which is like an image that has been sort of planted in previous series, like setting up this moment. Um, there's already t-shirts of this. I can tell you that much right now. Like, it's pretty cool. I like the resist. I like the idea of, like, the especially the actual graphic design element of it. I'm a sucker for some cool graphic design in a comic. And this is definitely a cool example of that. It is nice lettering, yeah. But essentially, one of the main factions of people that are able to defy Charles consists of Emma and about a dozen to two dozen other people at the gala who are able to teleport out of harm's way to the Hellfire Club in New York before getting got, with the exception of Lords Chantal? Is that her Lourdes name? Lourdes Chantal. Yeah, who has the tragic, like, heroic final act sort of death of getting stabbed just as she's teleporting everybody to safety. It's funny because the first time she died was also at a Hellfire Gala. 
in a in a backup story by Chris Claremont back in the I guess it must have been the eighties. Other things that happen, uh Mystique resists Charles's influence because she refuses to be controlled by him. And so she instead jumps out of like the ruins of the Hellfire Gala and commits suicide. Um Jean finally fully dies and on her way out says goodbye to Scott, who appears to have been paralyzed, I think is the implication in this. Uh, and Logan, who Logan's able to resist, and he is currently killing a whole bunch of Orcus dudes somewhere. He wasn't at the gala. Another really important thing is that Destiny willingly goes through the gate. So mm. if Destiny's doing it willingly, then a very big important thing that happens later is maybe not quite what happens, but just noting, Destiny goes in willingly. Yeah, and also pivotally the other main characters that go through of note are the five who are the key of resurrecting so uh yeah they've gone to wherever all the mutants are being sent and essentially the action just continues at the hellfire club emma and co realize that the gates have been fucked around with again in some way and they can no longer use them to teleport back to the island or to navigate anywhere at all really and meanwhile back at Krakoa Orcus and co kill all the humans present Charles is just like what the fuck I did what you asked why are you doing this because he's a dumb fuck because a gigantic part if not the entire point of his character arc here is that he's an assimilationist who tries to appease fascists and that goes exactly the way that goes and yeah you can't negotiate with these people there's no point and charles always wants to oh it's also established that the orcas have like bought out the media so the implication is that all the news headlines are going to be like no human survivors of the mutant hellfire gala and like they'll imply that mutants killed all the people despite, you know, the giant sentinels and all the gunshot wounds. But, uh, so right as Moira is about to kill Xavier, Rogue shows up, and now we're onto the Pepe Larras pages, and I do think that this comic looks absolutely fantastic for the last, like, couple pages that we have, because Pepe Larras is great. But Rogue is able to save him, and Charles demands that she takes him to Krakoa, which, like, Every mutant on Krakoa went through the gates, because certainly on Krakoa, you're right next to a gate at basically all times, so they all went through them all. And they've like put sentinels around it, so Rogue is like, well, don't, we can't do that. But they manage it anyway, and as they arrive on the island, Charles declares that the quarter million mutants on Krakoa, every single mutant his mind reached on Earth, and every single one who was vulnerable to him, who went through the gates is completely out of the range of his powers and dead. Yeah, like, he specifically thinks that they're dead because he can't sense them, and... If they were on Mars, he could, which yeah. is where he thought they were going. And so he's like, they did something more to the gates than they said, and they all died and I killed them. Yeah, he specifically uses the words, I pushed them into a meat grinder, 
they're all dead. So it is plot critical to understand this is just Charles saying this, and we see no actual visual confirmation that that is what happened. Enough important popular characters went through those gates for me to say, no, they're not. It's like... But, uh, if it weren't for seeing Destiny go through it, I might have actually bought it. It's like, at most, maybe some of them could have, but I think it's more likely that the reveal is just going to be that they've all been teleported far further out of reach or otherwise cloaked from perception because, yeah. Yeah, I'm assuming that Mother Righteous did a thing with them. And so we get the final page, which is... Well, the, the sort of final page of this initial bit, which is Fall of X, like the graphic, which clearly, I think, in this context means Fall of Xavier. Uh, I do like that they're playing around with what the X could mean again. Like, Reign of X was actually the Reign of Ten, because there were ten people in the Quiet Council, from Ten of Swords through to Inferno. And this is clearly the Fall of Xavier, and the complete failure of his ideology, even adapted as it was, to allow for Krakoa, which is already kind of pushing it for Charles, just having Krakoa. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to listen to his bullshit anymore after this. This is kind of the most he's ever fucked up. Like, this is this is a bigger fuck-up than even uh, Deadly Genesis. This is bad. Yeah, this is an interesting beat in that there is no logical way to possibly write him out of the responsibility for this except they're inevitably going to in however many years time to align and make him nicer for the mcu movie so we'll see how they try to do that oh i hope the movies just immediately categorize him as a jackass yeah the one positive about the last couple of the fox x-men movies is that they did manage to go oh yeah Charles Xavier sucks. Yeah. Uh, and we finally have a little coda which establishes that whatever Orcus did to the gate, it does allow Kitty Pride through them for the first time, which she weirdly has not been able to go through the gates before. And it's been, it's actually the one remaining unexplained mystery from like Dawn of X at this point. It's like the one dangling plot thread that they've just never done anything with. So we're presumably going to finally get an explanation for that as she falls through a gate to. Krakoa's uh, embassy in Jerusalem, where this whole era began in the beginning of Hoxpox, which is filled with Orcus agents, as is the implication of all the different Krakoan embassies. And yeah, this is going to be the start of her ninja era, which I think started yesterday as of recording, but I didn't read that issue. But her new ninja out, her new her new ninja outfit looks pretty cool. So. You know. Yeah. Who's the artist on these pages of Rogue and Charles? That's Pepe Larras. Real quick, I think I should mention I think the high point artistically of the issue is a panel by Pepe Larraz of Rogue's reaction to Charles telling her everyone is dead. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, just the expression of shock really works here and overall these are very nice pages but that specific image is 
the high point. Yeah, I'd agree, actually. That that is an incredible image. And um I will say the idea of Rogue being like this level of upset and pissed off because it turns out that nearly every mutant is dead makes Uncanny Avengers a much more tolerable prospect. Like that tonally is a very different book than I thought it was going to be when they announced it. Yeah, conceptually, it has the potential to be much more interesting coming out of this than the original version of that book was. It's just the Avengers constantly apologizing for leaving five minutes before all of this happened. Yeah. Because, like, Orcus frankly barely made that one. Like, they they really came for him, and, like, a lot of stuff did go wrong for the mutants. But, like, imagine if there was just, like, if four was here, they would have lost, because it was close. <laughs> there were several points where it got real close. So I yeah. bet the Avengers feel real bad about that one. Um, Yeah, I mean... The thing about this issue is I don't think it's that terrible in and of itself. I do think a lot of the beats work. As I said, I really like that like while Gene spends half the issue, like, well, not half the issue, but it, it's like half of what a normal-sized issue would be slowly dying of like this incredibly powerful poison that literally melts the flesh off of her bones. And while she's doing that, she's setting up mentally this incredibly convoluted like plot to get Firestar in Orcus as a mole and also says goodbye to her husband and their boyfriend on the way out like in a very cool power feat I really like the way that Charles is characterized and the way that the story just condemns the shit out of him um I hate Moira but I do quite like Dr. Stasis He's fun in the same way that Mr. Sinister is fun because he's just Mr. Sinister. But, like, he's great. Uh, I wish Karima had more to do because Karima is the member of Orcus I'm most interested in, but oh well. Like, and there's a lot of very cool moments. I mean, we didn't even mention Gene fastball specialing Juggernaut into Nimrod twice in the course of this issue. And, like, both times, it's pretty cool. Yeah. There's just, like, a lot of cool action beats, and the art is very inconsistent, but, like, the artists here that are artists that I really like are doing really good stuff. I mean, especially Ross at the end. I think that those last couple pages with Pepe Laras are some of... They're, they're really good. They look great. Yeah. I think a lot of the issues with the multiple artists would have been fixed if they had a single colorist. I think a lot of the, like, turning the page and that's a different artist's impact is the different colors and the different color palettes and the different ways that the different colorists are working with the lineup, and I think that a lot of that would be smoothed over, at least if they didn't have five different color artists on this. The resist stuff I think is really cool. I do like the cast that we're left with. I think that they're all neat. I really like that like Kingpin even takes one look at Orcus and is like, oh fuck this. He he does he does break a Orcus man's like Orcus soldier's neck with one hand because he is the Kingpin. One hand through a helmet, not even bare skin. Yeah, it's like an AIM beekeeper helmet because Orcus are just like a red AIM design. 
And yeah, he just one hands the guy because <laughs> he's pissed because he can't find his wife because she went through the gates. And so now he is a mutant ally, Wilson Fisk Kingpin. Um, but uh, I really hate the Krakoa's gone. I hate that so much. And there's so much potential left in the status quo that they had. And while I don't think Krakoa is gone forever, I think that there was like four more years worth of good stories out of just the status quo we had. I think that was part of my initial sour reception to it too, is that, you know, there's the issue as what all is in it. And then there's the reaction and worry and fear rising about what comes from this and what feels like is going to come from it because of what feels editorially mandated or otherwise just like a clear push in a certain direction and my worry is that regardless of whatever aspects come out of this that are good that the overall status quo when this all sort of settles a bit is just going to be much less enticing and intriguing than what we're breaking down and you know maybe hopefully i'll be wrong but i doubt it there's a kind of x-men storytelling that them living on krakoa and being able to be like safe and happy sometimes in a way that the mutants are just never allowed to be ever in any other status quo and especially not in this that like you got to explore things that you can't explore when the story of the comic becomes just we need to survive and i do think there's some cool stories set up here but they are all like last ditch fight to survive battles this feels like another decimation it's not i don't think it's gonna last as long as that i see this lasting two years and then we're gonna you know, pop open whatever bottle all of those mutants are in and they're going to be back because there's only so long we're going to have some of these characters off panel. And a lot of the characters who died here who, like, probably aren't immediately coming back, like, for example, the six who are up for the X-Men vote, those ones, like, Jubilee is not going to be dead for a while. Like, and the most simple way to bring these characters back is to pop the five out of that bottle that they're all in with all the other mutants, you know, wherever that is. Like, I'm not, but I don't know, we don't know if we're ever going to return to that high point, though, where we had Krakoa. We don't know if when all the mutants pop out of that bottle and they're back in the world, we will now have just the X-Men are operating out of the fucking mansion again you could conceivably wind up with that status quo coming back from this. Yeah. And part of, I think, my initial qualm with how convenient all the events in this issue feel is that it's very easy to theorize an editorial push in that direction for, again, just the sake of getting back to a more typical sort of status quo. The, the one thing about that is, though, the X-Men were doing that a whole bunch prior to Krakoa starting, and no one ever bought those books. And then Krakoa happened, and the X-Men became one of the biggest things in comics again. And 
it seems really stupid to me on an editorial level to be like, you know what we should do? We should bring back the 90s status quo because people really loved when we tried that with X-Men Blue and Gold or when we tried that with what was it Resurrection, the weird thing where they were with the Inhumans. Was that also Blue and Gold? I can't remember now. Blue and Gold but... were part of that relaunch, yeah. God. Or like whatever the like other rel- like it just it's just such a stupid idea to, like on every level getting rid of Krakoa just doesn't feel like a good idea and as much as there's stuff about the story that interests me I do I am excited for the issue of Immortal X-Men that is just going to be Charles being eaten by Krakoa because he's the only mutant left there now and Krakoa does feed on mutant life energy to survive so uh it's gonna get hungry and it's gonna eat him you could read this him like asking rogue to take him to the island as a suicide attempt actually now that i think about it which i could buy given him his realization of what he did that could be an interesting play out yeah on the topic of stories that you can get via the krakoa premise are we ready to unveil the reading assignment for next week yes so as part of what has now become the two-part goodbye to Krakoa, next week we're going to be reading issues 17 and 18 of Vidriola's New Mutants. Uh, the peak of what I would say are X-Men stories you could only tell because Krakoa is a thing. Like, it's that, and it's stuff that we've already covered, or stuff that I feel is a little redundant for us to cover, like the Crucible, or um, the economic forum at Davos. So we will be seeing just some... I mean, what for me now feels like a classic Krakoa era comic with the Vidaiella run on New Mutants. Uh, I really love that run. We've got the Rod Rice art, which is great. So look forward to that, everyone. Uh, I promise it's a much happier time than reading this comic. And my feelings about it are much more infused and a lot less mixed. Yeah, that'll be a more resoundingly positive discussion. And that'll be our goodbye to the wet, hot mutant summer. Uh, wet because of all the blood. Yeah. Hot because of Iceman getting melted, I guess. I mean, everything's on fire, too, actually. There's a lot of fire. This is a nasty comic. It's just mean. But with that said, that does us for this week. And we'll see you next week with uh, New Mutants. Thank you for listening, and bye. Bye, everyone. Excellent to each other.